Hello and welcome to the Humanizing Growth podcast series, brought to you by the Institute for Real Growth. Each week, IIB founders Frank von den Driest and Mark de Swan-Arons will be talking to global leaders and practitioners to discuss what it takes to drive human-centric growth. For more information, visit www.instituteforrealgrowth.com. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all viewers from all around the world. My name is Frank van den Driest of the Institute for Real Growth, and I'm super pleased and really excited to introduce as my guest for the day, Mark Pritchard, Chief Brand Officer at Procter & Gamble, the world's largest advertiser, but also as ANA board member, as Marketer of the Year 2020 by the WFA. Mark is not only shaping the marketing agenda at Procter & Gamble, he's actually shaping the agenda of our whole industry. With that, Mark, a very warm welcome. And let me start by asking you, where are you? And maybe you can say in one word how it is that you feel at this very moment. Well, thanks for having me, Frank. I really appreciate this. And I am currently in Baltimore, Maryland, which is where I live. I commute to and from Baltimore to Cincinnati. And how I feel today, I would say hopeful. I just feel that there's a lot of good things that are going to come in the, in the very near future and beyond. So I, I'm hopeful. I just reviewed a lot of the work that we have done over the past year. And, and I looked at it and I thought, okay, that's, that's, some, that's some pretty good work. So I look forward to the future and, and just I'm feeling hopeful today. Wow, that's, you said a few very important things and definitely things that, that I want to come back to later in this, uh, in this conversation. We're going to talk about a transformation journey for Procter & Gamble, but also the transformation journey for yourself as a leader and get as many lessons for our viewers as, as humanly possible out of this hour. So let's start at the very beginning. It's 39 years ago that you started at Procter & Gamble, right? That's right. 39 years. That's kind of a miracle, I guess. And with PG the whole time. Tell me, can you remember that very first day that you walked into one of the PG offices? Oh, yeah. I remember it like it was yesterday. And, and you know, I, I remember, in fact, I was just at a strategy meeting in, in that same building about a week ago. You know, I, I started in what was called the paper division at the time, which is our, our products are Charmin, Bounty and puffs, it's, uh, as well as Pampers, Loves, and Always. And I remember the first day, because my boss, his name was Stan Boric, he, he said some things from the very beginning. He said, you know, we're a company that does the right thing. You know, we, we do what's right. And it, was, it just stuck with me. It's just, you know, the values of our company were, were, were introduced to me on day one. On day one, and, you know, uh, that's... I find it very, very powerful. It really is. And, you know, it's, it's one, of the, one of the distinguishing characteristics of, of our company is we have a purpose to, you know, improve the lives of the world's consumers with, you know, superior products and services that, that um, lead us to leadership uh, results, but um, that are not only good for our shareholders, but they're good for, first and foremost, consumers, employees, and the communities in which we live and work. And so uh, I remember that from the very beginning. And, uh, and my boss saying, we do what's right. <clears throat> we, uh, we focus on, on, uh, on the consumers we serve. 
we have high integrity. I literally have a badge that has our values on it of integrity, leadership, ownership, teamwork. It's uh, I, That's why I remember it so well. I can imagine. Well, humanized growth is, is the term that we use at the IRG for, let's say, multi-stakeholder value creation over the long term. And, and, and we, specif- we focus very specifically on four C's, as we call them, colleagues, consumers and customers, communities and capital markets. And what, what, what I noticed when you just were talking, it was like almost you were reading out our definition. You right. left out one stakeholder group. Very interestingly, the capital markets or the shareholders. Ah, um, I, should ha- I should not have because, uh, or I think um, uh, what our superior results do deliver shareholder return. And, uh, but we tend to start with consumers, employees, retailers or our customers, uh, communities and shareholders. So, oh yes, capital markets, which are our shareholders, we're a profit, for-profit business. So it is absolutely in that purpose. I think many people say that they care about these things and, and, and probably all do. Um, but I, I guess, let's say the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And, and one of the, the great, let's say, indicators that I find to see to what extent people really embrace that multi-stakeholder agenda is look at, for example, town hall meetings. Like, do you talk about only about consumers, only about, I know, growth and profit, only about purposeful work, etc.? Can you tell a little bit about how you try to balance? Because obviously it, it must be a balancing act, right? Sure. You know, the, the way we balance, uh, Frank, is, is we like to think about what we do as being a force for good and a force for growth. It's important that, that you do both because as a company that, that has shareholders, as a public company, if you're a force for good without growth and value creation, then you're a philanthropy. And we're not a philanthropy, you know, we're, we're a for-profit business. And, but if you're forced for growth without any good, then consumers that we serve are increasingly viewing people like that or companies like that as mercenary. So you've got to do both. And that's the way we think about it. You, you can do good for, for obviously consumers first and foremost. Our job is to make their lives better every day with our household and personal care products and healthcare products. That's, that's job one. And, and that makes a big difference in people's lives. Then beyond that, we then focus on how we do that. And we do that through equality and inclusion. We do that in a way that, that is sustainable. We do that in a way that helps communities in need. All of those things then lead to growth and value creation, not only for our businesses, but for the, for the economy and for the communities in which we live and work. So so that's the way we talk about it. Force for good, force for growth. It's a, it's a circular and an iterative approach to how we view, you know, humanizing growth. It's almost like a self-propelling system if you, if, if you get it right. It's really sustainable then, Frank. You know, I, m- I remember probably 15 years ago when I was starting to work and really starting to get, get into some of this, some of this work. Uh, going and working, in this case, uh, we have a program, one of our signature programs called Children Safe Drinking Water. What we, we do is we go out, there's literally almost still a billion people, you know, 880 million people who don't have water, don't have clean water, many of whom are in places where they have to walk six miles a day to be able to get water. And often that water is so dirty, it creates illness. So we have got these little packets that we have now donated about 16 billion 
of these packets that can literally take horribly dirty and, and infested water and clean it completely. And it literally saves lives. I remember talking to some of the um, NGO partners at the beginning, and I said, look, let's figure out how we might be able to you know, work with P&G and some of our brands. They're like, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. So well, what do you mean, why not? Well, we're a nonprofit. I said, okay, and, and, and we don't want to look like we're, you know, we're, we're selling out and being too commercial. I said, well, that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is that if you work with a company like P&G and you work with our brands, what that can allow us to do is to be able to find a way to make it both a force for good and a force for growth, which will make it far more sustainable than the money that we could invest, that we could, that we could donate to you. We may donate $50,000, but we can help you get millions of dollars of worth of awareness and contribution if we work together. And that's, that's really the way we, we think about it internally and the way we think about it externally with our partners. It's interesting. So there was this little intro film about our RG 100 program that's basically almost a CMO only, uh, only community. And one of the questions that comes up so often is, you know, we believe it, we want it, but then, I don't know, a crisis happens or our share price goes down or whatever it is. And then, you know, everything goes out of the window and it's back to, you know, we got to make a profit. How do you deal with that, those kind of very real pressures? It's, it's such an important point because that's right. If, if it is viewed as a, this, this effort, we call it citizenship, tend to call it citizenship, but humanizing real growth is the, growth is the way to think about that. If, if that is viewed as a separate bolted on effort that you do in times of good, it will never last. Instead, what we focus on is building it in, building it into how we do business. So we do identify, as I mentioned, our, our core priority areas, equality and inclusion, environmental sustainability, community impact. And then the foundation of that is just ethics and corporate responsibility. But by building it into how we do business, then it becomes part of the business model. So sustainability, building in innovations that are superior performing innovations, product innovations that are also sustainable will make that last. Tide and Ariel cold water are a great example. Most, most of the carbon emissions in use for laundry detergent come from heating the water for the washing machine. Um, so, so when you turn the dial down to 30 degrees Celsius or even lower, and that allows us to wash, get your clothes clean in a superior way, which by the way, it's better for the clothes because it's less heat. So there's less damage mm -hmm. and it reduces the energy load and the carbon emissions by 80% for that particular laundry load. So that is an, a, an innovation that is built in to how, um, how, how we do business. We do the same thing on, on Cascade and, um, and Ferry dishwasher, automatic dishwasher, which is it actually turns out when you use a, a dishwasher, it uses less water than when you wash by hand because the water, the four gallons are recycled um, when you wash by hand, you're pouring out four gallons every two minutes. So that's, that then leads you to, it's a built-in innovation. That's why when we do that, then it's something that's sustainable. So if, if things, you know, get rough, then we're already, we're already after it and we're already on it. It's um, locked in. It's locked in. If you think even about, you know, just the, just basic, you know, productivity, when you, in the environment, reduce energy, 
reduce waste, reduce water in your operation, that actually saves money. That's good for business because you're, you're spending less on resources. So same thing on equality and, and inclusion. You know, we build in equality and inclusion into our everyday advertising. As the world's largest advertiser, and off and on, we go one, one to two. Our voice in advertising makes a huge difference. So if you think about it, the images in advertising embed memories into people's minds. So how you portray people can create bias, particularly if it's stereotyped, objectified, diminished, or whatever the case may be. So our number one job is to make sure we have the accurate portrayal of every person in our advertising, regardless of gender, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identity, disability or ability, religion, body type, age. So accurate portrayal, because when you have the accurate portrayal, it actually helps eliminate bias, helps promote equality. And by the way, we have demonstrated when you do that, it actually builds the business. There's a See Her Gem study that was done, gender equality measure study, that showed when you have the accurate portrayal of women and girls, it actually increases trust by 10% and purchase attempt by 20%. So therefore, it becomes part of how you do business. That's 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 making the business case for it. I, I just want to go back a little bit to what you just said about, let's say, pushing a humanized growth agenda. I mean, listen, you were 39 years ago, you were told on your very first day by your boss you know, that this was a purposeful business. I can tell you many of the people in our program do not work in companies where on their first day, especially 39 years ago, they would have been told that. They would have been told what is going to be the turnover and what's going to be the profit. So if you, if you any advice for, for these leaders, these CMOs that work in a company that is really dominated by financial targets, uh, mostly short term, what can you as a marketer do to, to push that agenda, to push that humanized growth agenda. Any advice from you? You know, key advice for me would be to start with the consumers you serve or whoever your constituents are. Start by understanding what they want. What's really interesting is, is today, nine out of 10 consumers feel better about a brand if it supports a social or environmental cause. More than half of consumers now, and it's, and it's even higher than that, closer to 70 plus percent among millennials and Gen Z, more than half, though, expect brands to, to take a stand, to make a difference, to do something for good for the, for, for the, for the environment or for equality. I mean, it really, that really happened in the last year when people, you know, during the pandemic and the racial and social injustice. So, so start there. And then then start to dive into figuring out what you can do on your business that makes the most sense that can help advance your particular product or service. And then like what, what we have done, largest advertiser, you're, you know, how do, we, how do we best do that? Well, we can definitely portray people in an accurate way and periodically take a stand against bias. And that makes sense for us. We're, we're a large advertiser. The environmental examples that I provided to you innovate in such a way that delivers that sustainability, but but then you have to make the case for growth, as 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 I was describing. You know, it it took some time for us, but making the case that if we have the accurate portrayal, if we if we do that consistently, it'll help drive our business. And then we proved it over and over again. We proved it with always like a girl, with always end period poverty, with Olay face anything, with SK two change destiny, with Ariel share the load, um, you know, with with Vic's touch of care. When we when we started proving that you could do, you know, uh, humanized growth, 
and you and that business grows, then we started to shine a light on those those situations, and then people started started getting excited about it, and uh, and then it then it became a creative exercise. So you know you really have to you have to go back to the fundamentals. You know what do your consumers want? What makes sense for your business? What how do you do that in such a way that that actually helps grow the brand or the service that you have, and then shine the light on it. And then eventually it starts to become part of the way you do business. Mark, That's my advice. Very clear advice. You make it sound so easy. <laughs> it's not, it's not, it takes time. You know, it really does. The other thing I would say, Frank, you know, is it was 1989 when our president at the time, uh, John Pepper, convinced our then CEO, John Smale, to write a diversity policy. And at the time, our company was largely white cisgender men, particularly in the management ranks. And, and he, John Pepper knew that it was going to take a generation to really make good progress on this, not just on, from a gender standpoint, but also from a race standpoint. Eventually, we actually we added LGBTQ+. But he knew it was a generation because our company tends to uh, recruit people straight out of, out of university and then advances them. But so we did a lot of work inside to ensure that we had a foundation that reflected what we were going to say, what we said internally and what we eventually said externally. It wasn't until 2014 that we really went out with our voice. And that was with, um, with Always Like a Girl, which was the groundbreaking you know, gender equality message. But we had, we had at the time, you know, we had made enough progress. In fact, right now, 48% of our managers are women. So we're very close to 50-50 gender equality at every level. And, and um, the, the brand and the marketing organization that I, uh, that I have responsibility for, it's, it is 50-50 at every level. Um, actually, maybe five, five short, five, five promotions short of getting to 50-50 at the very, very top level. So I say that because what's important is you got to make sure you do the work inside before you start going outside. Do you use quota, forced quota inside? Um, no, what we do is we set aspirations. It's an interesting tension between meritocracy and quota. How do you yeah. view the tension and how do you deal with it? What our views are, in my view of this, is, is the same, is that when you set the aspiration and the expectation and set the goal and then make the case for why it's the right thing to do, both for society and for the business, you'll make more progress and it'll be lasting. You know, what, what happened with this CEO statement of diversity, you know, it was actually three years later that our then CEO, Ed Arst, made a statement to include sexual orientation in our uh, EEO policy. And then later on, we formed affinity groups um, for gender and for um, uh, LGBTQ plus and, and eventually for different races, people with disability and whatnot. But the expectation from leadership was consistent. And, and while we didn't set quotas, we did set goals and in some cases, aspirations. So what I mean by an aspiration, yeah, we're, we're, we're shooting for this. We're not there yet. We're shooting for this. And then we're very open about it. And then what, what I have found is what we've found is that when you, when you do that, people rise to the occasion because they see why it's the right thing to do. They see it's the expectation. A quota is forces compliance. And what happens then is that Something could change, and that goes out the that goes out the door. 
there will always be people that don't come on board. How do, how do you deal with those? Indeed, that's, that's leadership's job. Our job as leadership is to set the expectations and hold people accountable. My CEO, our CEO, David Taylor, set very specific, in this case, goals, and set, we first set them for 2020, then he set them for 2025, now we're setting them for 2030. But the goals were set and broken down by business unit. And then he made that clear, this is my expectation for what you need to do. And then what, what we've done then is we then put systems in place and then we take action to be able to make the adjustments, at least in this case, I'm talking about for, for equality and equal representation. Now, if over time a person doesn't achieve those goals, you know, and then, and then of course, all of us as leaders then cascade them to the rest of the organization. But if over time somebody doesn't make it, you know, the first thing you do is, why aren't you making this? Give me the analysis, like any business goal. What's, what's the, you know, why is it happening? And then if over time you see that they're not interested in it and they're not demonstrating that, that the cause is their lack of leadership or lack of action and they don't they take remedial action, then they're, they're held accountable for that. It either holds them back from a promotion or there's, a, there's consequences from, from compensation. There's, there's other consequences. If it's really a problem, then they're, then they're removed. But by and large, we have found that doesn't happen mostly because of what I told you about day one. People that come into our company are inculcated with those purpose, values, and principles from the very beginning, and it cascades. So by the time you're in a senior leadership position, you know you 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 live and breathe those principles. So by and large, when there's an expectation, people deliver. It's so th- there's one other tension that I find in this same space really interesting. You talk about let's say diversity, and and you know for we know that because more diverse perspective lead to better decision-making. Probably don't need to convince a lot of people of that. On the other hand, you're carrying a badge, you said, with the values of the companies. Mm -hmm. So with these values being so dominant, how isn't that at odds with diversity of perspective? Uh, Now, actually, on the contrary, I would say that that these values um, drive respect and, and drive respect for differences. And so, um, you know, and there's also a set of principles. Can you give an example of how that's... How that's- um, the principles around uh, what we're shooting for in, is in terms of respecting individuals, but also respecting differences. And, and then, and actually creating and developing a diverse and inclusive workforce that drives innovation. Those things, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion really drive the, the opportunity to have, to drive more innovation. And so, you know, and we're a company that innovates. We're a company that basically, what you're saying is, basically what you're saying is we make it part, the diversity is part of our values. So we actually, it's, it's one, basically. It becomes part of how we operate. Absolutely correct. And then, as I mentioned, those citizenship priorities that I provided provided to you, equality and inclusion that we build in to how we operate, it becomes part of how you operate. And then that's definitely, so there's always going to be differences of opinion. The difference, what, what's important is differences of opinion are valued because differences of opinion can drive to better outcomes. You know, we often say, we did some training once around the better third way. It was actually Roger Martin 
um, who is from the University of Toronto, who's been a consultant with us for probably 30 years, he gave us this thing about there's a, there's, there's, you know, uh, there's always one, there's always two ways and there are, you know, two options that people have and, 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 and people will, will gravitate toward this one, this one, and it's either right or wrong. No, how about there's a third way? And often when we come at odds on something and we can't figure something out, we say, is there a better third way here? You know, could we consider, you know, just a, a different way of, we might be able to do this? And that, that's the definition of innovation. Clear, thanks. Mark, I wanna go once more back to that 39 year journey. Then we'll look at the status quo of, of the industry today. And, and then we'll look at what's to come and how to future proof. But just going back those 39 years, let's talk about interventions that, that, that you remember out of, out of those 39 years that you feel really, really made a difference that you as a marketing leader made that maybe some of our viewers can learn from and, 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 and be inspired. Yeah. You know, the first one, which was, I would say, which is probably the most profound one for me personally, was it was over 20 years ago um, when I was running our CoverGirl business. And uh, that's why I'm in Baltimore. Baltimore was the headquarters of the CoverGirl business. And I, I moved here and, um, <clears throat> and uh, our, my, my wife, Betsy, and I, and our three, three daughters who are all under the age of 10, were at a, it was at a, a spiritual ranch in, um, in Colorado. You were there uh, with your family? I was there with my family. And it was a, it was a full, you know, spirit, all, all types of denominations. And so, no, you know, it was, it was mostly about, spirituality and and whatnot so we can the, have uh, another conversation about that one it would be super yeah. interesting in itself but, but, but do go yeah on. yeah well and and at this um at this uh ranch the the head of this at the very end of this the the spiritual leader of it who was um uh, a minister actually came up to me and said you know i hope you know the good you can do because you're in business and business will someday be the greatest force for good in the future. It won't be governments. It won't be clergy. It won't be, you know, um, you know, laws. It'll, it'll be, it'll be business. So if you choose to do so, you can really do a lot of good. And it was, it was a blinding moment of clarity for me, Frank. I was, I, I was like, oh, whoa, wow. That's, that's a, that's a big, <laughs> it's a big point. And at the time we had just created the easy, breezy, beautiful cover girl campaign, which is, you know, uh, I'm happy to say is still, still alive. Um, but we had, had created it in such a way that um, we were getting some feedback that our, our spokespeople were too young, too thin, too white. They were, it was a stereotypical and even somewhat objectified standard of beauty. And I realized that and I thought we have got to do something about that. I cannot, I looked at my three young daughters and I said, you know what, they cannot grow up thinking that that's the definition of beauty. And we changed and we changed the whole thing. And we actually went to much more of an inside outside beauty. We, we brought in many, many more diverse spokespeople like Queen Latifah, ultimately Ellen DeGeneres. It was a transformation. And I realized that has a huge impact on how people see themselves. And that's that then you fast forward to becoming CMO when you know uh, the next moment was in is you know sitting in Cannes watching another company take a bunch of, uh, of awards home. And uh, the always team looked at us, looked at me and said, you know what, we need to, we need to come back here. We need to be up there next year. And then the next year they brought like a girl and it literally changed the meaning of the phrase, always like a girl, like a girl was a, 
negative phrase and it turned into a positive phrase as a result of that. Again, a profound impact. And that's when we declared, you know, as the world's largest advertiser, we are going to use our voice as a force for good. Uh, then we had, as I mentioned, Face Anything, Change Destiny, Ariel Share the Load, which literally in India and other parts of the world got men to step up and do laundry because laundry is not just for women. Laundry can be done by men. Uh, so these were moments. Then, then, I, then here in the United States, uh, we did the talk, which shined a light on the talk that Black parents have with their children about the prejudice they'll face. Then the look, which shined a light on how Black men face deep uh, racism on a daily basis. And then last year, the choice, uh, which really, after George Floyd was killed, concentrated on getting the white community to step up. And these were moments that we look at as milestones of, of making a difference and being, being that force for good. Um, I would also say, Frank, and then I'll stop, is the last year when the pandemic hit, the expectation of, of just companies stepping up was so, so big. We converted our disaster relief work. We, we typically very quietly for the past 25 years, whenever there's a disaster, a hurricane, a tornado, a flood, an earthquake, we donate products to help people get back on their feet uh, very quietly. We converted all of that, not all of it, but, but much of it to help people who, were, who had needs during the COVID pandemic. And it was, it was tens of millions of dollars. Um, very quietly, no headlines, just did it. Um, to help communities in need. So these are moments that I, that I really look back on and think they were big moments. They made a difference. Uh, and they've, and they, I think they've really, and they've helped our, helped our the many people around the world and helped our company. And, and, and I guess energized you. You I mean, these are the kind of things that get you up in the morning, right? Absolutely. Let's talk also though about the things that, that, that keep you awake at night. Uh, maybe failures that that happened and and how to deal with it because as I said you always make it make it sound easy I know from all the feedback in the, in the leaders in our program it is not easy obviously how how have you dealt with with real strong setbacks caused by yourself or by others uh, probably the most profound <laughs> setback uh, or if, if it was where we took a lot of heat from Gillette, we believe. Gillette, you know, has, has had, had had a campaign called The Best a Man Can Get for since the 80s. And it was very, very stereotypical. You know, it was, uh, you know, uh, very masculine. You know, in some cases, the, the work that they did objectified or even diminished women, not intentionally, but it did over time. They decided we need to make sure uh, you know, and I and I really encourage them to. You guys got to modernize. You know, you gotta you gotta get a better. You gotta you gotta wake up here. I mean, this is the um, yeah, this was right after the Me Too movement occurred, and they came back with a with really a, an outstanding film called We Believe because it basically is we believe in men, and we believe that men can be the best they can be, and we want them to we want to demonstrate that they can be role models, and that it's not enough to just not be you know a, hara a harasser. You have to step up and step in and, and do things. So they they demonstrated this with a with a 90 second film. The problem is the front half set up the problem and it set up the problem that said it said the Me Too movement and it said toxic masculinity. And it actually showed some very bad behavior by men. 
that turned into a storm of, of great proportion. It was simultaneously the most uh, liked video and the most disliked. Uh, it actually sparked uh, several groups to come out and object to it. And, uh, and it created you know, this, this amazing uh, uh, storm. And uh, so we spent a lot of time dealing with that. It turned out 110 million people saw it. So probably the people who objected to it, and they were objecting to, to, to some of the words in particular, saying that we were depicting men in a negative way. And that wasn't the intention, but that's the way it came across. And that's what they jumped on. And um, so how do we deal with that? Well, we really stepped back and said, are our intentions right? Yes. Uh, are we really trying to do the right thing? Yes. Um, okay, we're trying, let's, let's keep going. And we kept going. And we started getting out there and we started, we, we started getting our narrative out there. And we started then demonstrating the good we were actually doing. We were actually donating money, <clears throat> donating money to uh, men and boys um, organizations to help them. So, and we kept going. And then, and then, you know, then we made some modifications to, to the next generations of that work. But I look back on that, what I would say the lessons of it as well were, uh, first of all, it did change the mindset of, of people about, about Gillette. It did spark some great conversations and it actually built our business among the millennial uh, consumers. But what it helped us do is look back and say, now, what did we do wrong? What, what, what could we have done differently? Number one, what we could have done is we didn't have to spend as much time showing the negative in the, in the film. We could have just gone right into the better part. That's one thing. Two, we got to recognize there are trigger words. You know, toxic masculinity and the Me Too movement focused on men is a tr are trigger words. So we just got to be sensitive to that. Third, at first we were like, wait, we're just, we're just rejecting all those people who reject this. And we said, no, 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 no. We need to listen to all those people who are rejecting this and understand. And that was for me, one of the best learnings I've ever had, which is, no, 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 always listen to someone who has a different point of view and learn something from that. So I am far more respectful now um, of all views. And I really think about that with everything we do now. There, you know, because what, what this was saying is many men were saying, particularly Caucasian men were saying, hey, what, uh, we're, we're, we don't want to, we don't want to be viewed, you know, be, be shown this way. We're not all like that. You know what? They're right. You're not. They're not. There, so let's don't depict it in that way. So uh, anyway, it's it's a great story, and I think also the fact uh, I really like your learning of of actually embracing the, not embracing the negative, but but facing it and starting the conversation. I think then all of a sudden it can turn a negative can turn into an opportunity. It is, and, it, and what I would the advice I give Frank to people is is you know before you go in, and we do this now on on, on everything is we go in and say when we've got something that we think might be controversial, we go and think about and even listen to people who we think it might be controversial with so they can give us input. I mean, these are some really great stories, inspiring stories of setbacks, of successes, etc. One thing that I've noticed for, for now decades already, first it was among global brand leaders, then among CMOs, is that I think that it, that it can actually be really lonely. It's, it's probably the thing that the participants in our program feedback the strongest is the fact that they have time with each other. Jokingly, they call them the breakout sessions, the, the therapy sessions. Therapy. <laughs> but, it, but it's very clear that, it's, that it can be at times really, really lonely in those roles. Do, do you recognize that? 
Yeah, I think it's it's what happens, you know, throughout your career as you as you move into increasing levels of responsibility. It, you you it, you become can become further and further removed from from other people, and you know, and people, you know, it's it's called position power. You have a, you have power just by virtue of your position, whether you really have any power or not, doesn't matter. The position carries weight with it. And so, and recognizing that is important. I can remember when I first took this job, um, you know, the, my predecessor was, was, um, was Jim Stengel, who's a remarkable leader and a fantastic CMO. And, you know, the, the person who I was working with was concerned that, hey, how are you going to fill his shoes? And I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll do my best. But she said, you know, it's going to be a, you know, a tough act to follow. And I said, yeah, it is. But, but also recognize something that, that, um, this position is is what's important. The individual in it is important, of course, but but you got to respect the position um, and uh, and and recognize that you know it, it's it's also fleeting. So I always try to never make it about me. Fleeting, yeah, you're only going to be in the job for a certain period of time, um, and uh, and so the 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 key that that I like to think about that to help deal with this because you know they say it can be it can be lonely is is actually turn it the other way around. And I actually make my job about being useful to other people. Is is it's, it's in service of the people in the organization. It, it has it's it's not about me. And you know, and I have this conversation with some of our leaders in our company that never make never make either the, the success or failure of, of, of anything or the company in particular about an individual. Um, and, and certainly don't do that as a CMO. Um, you know, you're going to be in this position for a certain period of time. You're in the chair and that matters with that in mind, recognize that you have an obligation to serve others um, because they're the ones that do everything. I mean, really, you know, my, <laughs> that they're the ones that do the work. So I view this role as just an incredible privilege to be able to represent the work of the 5,000 brand builders around the company that's and then and our and our partners as well so it's a it's a way of it's a coping now it's also nice to get together with other cmos and, and commiserate because that's really important but but a coping mechanism i would suggest is flip it yeah. um flip it and focus on others you never make it about you no and others will try to make it about you uh, because it's just a natural you know the way the way humans work but if you can just try to Never read your own headlines, for example, and um, and just focus on how you can help serve the people in your organization. You'll it, it'll it, it, you'll be able to deal with it um, more effectively. So, in this thirty-nine year journey, let's look at today. Now, there's been a lot of reinvention, transformation, and we're now at obviously a very well, let's put it mildly interesting moment in time. Isn't it time that we start? innovating innovation itself yeah you know the the way we like to think about it frank is um is const we call it constructive disruption you know, there's almost so much disruption in the world you see it through uh, digital continuing to grow but then privacy starting to come in you see linear tv declining over the top streaming increasing data analytics and technology coming expectation of consumers you know uh, brand, uh, brand building and marketing merging with commerce for e-commerce taking over some massive disruption. And the best way to deal with that disruption is, is lead it. 
and lead it, but lead it in a constructive way that creates growth and value. You can you can disrupt and destroy value, or you can disrupt and create value and try to build markets. And so that requires a level of innovation on everything we do. So, you know, we focus on trying to reinvent brand building. We're trying to reinvent, and that means innovation. It's innovating in media to ensure that we can get, we still want to get mass reach of a lot of people, but we want to do it with precision. And so that requires data analytics and technology. Um, you know, if you think about uh, reinventing advertising, the way we're, we're now, you know, thinking about how content is you know, going to be driving commerce uh, as one example, the how we work with our agencies and innovation. We've, we've tried to focus on product innovation to take all the advantages that we have of, of the knowledge of, of our, of our uh, you know, 180 years of, of knowledge about our products and operate more like a startup. And so we went out about five years ago and started to adopt, adopt lean startup and lean innovation uh, capabilities. So we now have about 180 startups that are, that are operating. So it's a different way of innovating that is allowing us to move on a much faster cycle than we did before and, uh, and iterate and then fail and pivot and fail and pivot and then eventually scale. So yeah, it's, it's a totally different way of, of operating. And I, I think we're just scratching the surface really. I mean, I think that, you know, the last year probably accelerated things by five years. And I think the next five years are just going to be exponential in the amount of change that's going to occur. I, I won't ask you your age, but you've worked for 39 years at Procter. You so, it out. <laughs> so not the youngest among the, the, the marketing peers. I mean, even if you're young, how do you keep up with it? How do you innovate yourself as a person? And so I don't mean per se in the skills, just yeah. as a person, how do you need to evolve to stay future-proof? You know, the I, I adopted, adopted a mindset several years ago because I'd been a CMO for a while. And I said, you know, I, I got to keep fresh. Mm -hmm. um, and so the mindset was, I like pretended to fire myself every 18 months and then start over again. And the reason why I say that, and then I rehire myself, of course, or I, or I pretend that I would get rehired. <laughs> I don't want to be fired. But what that did and, and why did I, I chose 18 months because that's Moore's law, as you know, which is yeah. that computing power doubles every 18 months. So given the exponential changes that occur, I thought, okay, it better be every 18 months. Because what I noticed is when you come in fresh to a job, you are not encumbered by the past. Yeah. You just look at where things are. You look at what's happened. You look at where things are and you try to look at what's going. And so I, I said, that's a good mindset to have because then I don't fall in love with whatever I, I worked on before. And I don't, I don't view that as being sacred. It just instead said, okay, I'm going to look at, Where are we now and where do we need to go? And, and, and then look at the past and honor the past, but also be objective about and discerning about what's working, what's not working, but then really spend a lot of time figuring out how you go forward. And then I <clears throat> adopted with my team a win, you know, the kind of two things. Our job is to win today and invent tomorrow. So we have to constantly figure about what do we got to do to win now? And there's some fundamentals about brand building that are enduring. There's, they're, like, they're like the laws of nature. And, and, and especially in our, in our business, you know, so we constantly talk about these irresistible superiority and product package 
communications, retail execution, and value. It's productivity to fuel growth. It's who our consumer is, what our brand stands for, and how we execute across those five vectors. These are, these are foundational. They don't change, but how you do them changes. So we're constantly looking about how we need to invent that future. And that's a way to keep fresh. So then it's a constant, the mode that I'm in along with my team are, and, and frankly, we really put, uh, really try to make this with every brand builder is you're in a constant learning mode. Every day is a new day. That's where, you know, what I, what I love about this job is that today I'm learning as much as I learned on the day I started back on May 17th, 1982. In fact, I'm probably learning more. That's a way to stay fresh. And, uh, and it's pretty invigorating because, because then, then you know that this, this is, it's always, it's always going to change and you just get accustomed to that. And uh, that becomes part of the way you operate. Have you ever gone back to that uh, spiritual ranch? No, but I want to. I mean, first of all, I, I grew up in Colorado, so I, I view that part of the world as, as, as home. And it was, uh, it was such an amazing experience because it was people with, from all walks of life. I was raised Catholic. My wife is Jewish. I'm very, very open. My father was, was actually, I'll give you another personal story. My father was a, was a recovering alcoholic. So he focused on a higher power. If you've ever studied the 12 steps, there's a higher power. And it's, it's really a more a higher power of your understanding as opposed to any one denomination, which is, again, a, a mind-opening view of spirituality. And so that there are many paths up the mountain. Um, and that, that leaves you with a sense of openness around, you know, how the universe is going to unfold. And, um, you know, there's, a, I think, I can't remember who, who the, the, Tony Morrison or Maya Angelou said, you know, the universe will unfold as it should. When you have those kinds of experiences, which, by the way, was with my family, you know, that's uh, in, including my dad, who was there at the time, you know, that that just that that gives you a, a different outlook and, um, you know, and enables if you fully embrace it, enables you to 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 embrace whatever comes at you. It's interesting. I've just uh, myself been to uh, two weeks ago to a silence retreat in the south of France. The challenge that I find is that that is a wonderful experience. And I really liked what you just said, yeah. uh, but how to integrate that mind state, if you will, into your daily rush, rush life. I wish I was better at that, Frank. I think if you've been to a silence retreat, because I've actually spoken with people who've done that and um, I really admire their ability. I wish I was better at staying in the moment. That's the, that's the part that, you know, even after, my career and, and life, I still have to I certainly have to work on that. I will say this, and I, and you know, the, not to, not to go too far with it, but every day, I, I, you know, I essentially pray for the strength to be useful to whomever I come in contact with, and of course, I'm, I'm thankful for for everything in my life. That at least helps, you know, that little bit of grounding, yeah, um, to do. And then the other thing is, I don't know if you uh, another tip for everybody. Ariana Huffington is one of our partners and she's, she's created this program called Thrive, which is a great program, but micro steps to help you kind of deal with things. And one of the, one of the best micro steps she gave me was, was, you know, deter, determine a time in your day when your day is done and then put your phone to bed, you know, and make sure your phone is not in your room. And she actually even has created a little bed for phones that you can put, um, <laughs> but it was a really good point because then, and I think this is particularly difficult 
during the pandemic, as you well know, because because by working from home, many people said it wasn't working from home, it was living at work. And so the boundaries got blurred. And I found that uh, I found that personally very difficult to deal with. And um, but 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 it's an important, you know, kind of discipline of pick a time when you're done because you need the, you need the recovery. You know, you can't recover without without having time done. You've got to, in order. Resilience is driven by recovery and that's driven by setting boundaries. This is something that I mean, you probably don't take your team. I mean, you didn't go back yourself to the ranch, so you probably didn't take your team either. But things like this, both, let's say, uh, self-care, obviously, but even spirituality. Is that something that you bring into discussions with your teams, or do you feel that's a private affair? And uh... no, p- periodically, when it's when it when it feels appropriate, you know, and and often what I've found is, you know, almost inevitably. You know, a team member you have will face some difficulty, will face a challenge, you know, and, and a personal challenge. And, you know, one of the things that that gives you the opportunity to show humanity when somebody has a tough time, when, you know, when, when there's a divorce or a, or a death um, or, or, or an illness or a surgery. Or this is one of the things that I love about our company is the fact that we really rally around each other when that happens. And but I can think people many have times, rallied around you. Um, and oh yeah, definitely. You know, my my when when that's happened many times. In, you know, in, in, in my career, um, you know, either when I mean, recently my my uh, my my mother who uh, uh, remarried and uh, and and her her husband died literally six months after they remarried. It was it was terrible. You know, but everybody completely completely supportive. Um, you know, and and I. I but that's an example of where you can show humanity and you can actually express your, you can express your, your values, your spirituality, what's important and those kinds of things. Um, and then, you know, look, every once in a while, um, I mean, I, for just example, this week, uh, one of my uh, dear colleagues and who works for me, Peter Carter, is retiring after 41 years. And, you know, and we, we, announced it to his team. We talked about the replacement. I started talking a little bit about his, uh, his accomplishments. And then I choked up and I started, I cried because I, you know, he's, he's meant a lot to me and I've been there with him for through thick and thin and he's done the same for me. And, you know, showing that humanity. And I often, sometimes I'm actually an easy crier, Frank. I mean, actually I, I cry, I cry pretty easily. <laughs> um, and I admit it, but, but what you realize is people said, you know, wow, you just showed you're a human. And, the, and that's part of the problem as a CMO. You're not viewed as a human in many cases. You're viewed as a machine. And so periodically that, that expression of humanness goes a long way. I think that's, I'm pulling out two things. One, it's not about you. The other is, don't forget you're human. It's, it's, it's interesting. They seem almost at odds, but, but, but they're not. I, I can totally see that. You, you said earlier in the conversation that you you know, that you rise every day with the idea of that you want to contribute and, and, and give. Mm-hmm. Uh, you certainly did in the past hour. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, you come across as a very, very human leader. Um, and, uh, and it's very clear that you don't make it about yourself, but that you are yourself. Thank you so. very much for that. Uh, before we go, uh, go, though, I really, thanks again, Mark. You've been a fantastic guest. And... Um, to have a beautiful day. Thank you, Thank Frank. You very much. Really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Bye-bye.